So today we're continuing on our, in our CSA retreat, uh, looking into the teachings and the inspiration of the Bhagavad Gita. And uh, we're using the translation primarily of Mr. Davis and his commentary, The Eternal Way. So this is a wonderful resource, an opportunity to uh, explore more of the symbolism of the story uh, and to get more insight. And so it's a useful thing to go back and review this again and again. Um, I've been reading this book for almost 50 years now, and uh, it always gives me some new inspiration every time, um, new insight. So I highly recommend having your own copy. We'll go ahead and talk a little bit more, and I'm going to read uh, some of what Krishna says directly, and then we'll comment on it. And, and as we go forward, if you have questions, of course, you can just ask anytime. Um, we're kind of all in this together. And so if something just really pops up, feel free to unmute yourself and, and say something. So uh, where we left yesterday is in the middle of chapter three, and uh, Krishna is speaking to Arjuna. Krishna, again, is the higher consciousness, is awareness, and Arjuna represents us, represents the seeking soul, um, that which is aspiring to be awake, which is aspiring to know, to understand. And so Krishna is educating Arjuna uh, relative to the nature of how things work. And this is the chapter, chapter three is entitled the yoga of action or karma yoga. So this is the yoga of karma, selfless service. And so we're discussing and learning more about how to live as a karma yogi. And so Krishna says, the wise man does not unsettle the minds of the ignorant. Quietly acting in the spirit of yoga, he inspires them to do the same. So the wise man does not upset, does not unsettle the minds of the ignorant. So the point here is that we don't need to try to change others. We don't need, uh, because we're inspired, because we have, um, you know, some intuition, because we get really fired up about what we've just learned. Wow, this is really useful. And so we want to share it with everyone. And because we're thinking about, um, you know, being more compassionate or um, inhibiting our anger or being grateful or something, some attribute that we've kind of come across and we're really starting to embody and we feel that it's really useful. And because we feel it's really useful, we feel everyone else should feel it's really useful. And so we run around and tell everybody, this is what you should be doing. You should be grateful. You should be practicing gratitude. Every morning, get up, have your little notebook next to your bed with your pencil, First thing in the morning, write down the five things that you're really grateful for, any five things. Get this process started. Learn to be grateful. We tell people what to do because kind of like on one hand, we want to have, you know, we want to feel like somebody else is going along with us. So it makes, it makes us a little more comfortable if we can get other people on board. And because, you know, we intend good, we want people to experience the benefit of what we're experiencing. And because we know that most people have a lot of problems and they need help, and so it's up to us to fix them. And so, so what, what uh, 
Krishna is saying is you don't need to fix them. All you need to do is to live your life consciously, mindfully. This is your yoga, is the yoga of bringing together your attention and awareness with your life, you see. Yourself, ultimately, when we meditate, but also with your life. So we pay attention to how we're living, what we're doing, how we think, how we feel, how we act. All these things are important. And in the process of doing this, we set the example. So rather than telling people what to do and pointing out the error of their ways, which is always, you know, the, the mind, the default mode of the mind comes back to being critical. So if we're not actively engaged in something, if we're not doing something on purpose, the mind drops into what's called default mode and default mode becomes critical, judgmental of ourselves, the people around us, the environment, circumstances. It's just the way it's made. And so, so, you know, we easily see the faults in others and we're really very interested in helping them to be better. And so, and so it's really easy to help other people by telling them how to live and what they're doing wrong and being critical and judgmental. And this is not karma yoga. Karma yoga is that we pay attention to ourself, pay attention to our life, do what we need to do, live on purpose and set an example. And the example that we set then inspires and motivates others. The ones that resonate, that can see what's happening, they go, oh, wow, you know, maybe it's possible to be different. Maybe it's possible to, to live in a better way, to be healthier and happier. So, so better off to focus on ourself rather than to focus on others and to you know, create the conflict that can come when we start telling people what to do. Because, you know, most of the time, they're not really open and receptive to this coaching that we're offering free and, and uninvited. And then he goes on to say that actions are really performed by the working of the three gunas. But a man deluded by the eye sense imagines that I am the doer. So what are the three gunas? We talked about this last week. The three gunas are tamas, this is inertia, heaviness, density. Then there is sattvas, which is radiant, emanating, expressive. And then there is rajas, which is the movement between the two. This is passion, desire. And so these three gunas, these three aspects of creation, are in inherent in everything. And it is their action and interaction, their movement, that impels us to act, that impels everything to be working the way it's working. And, and so we are, um, to a certain degree, the, the effect of what's happening with the gunas. But, and this is a big but, the problem is that we think that, we feel that we have this separate independent existence that I, with the capital I, I am having this experience and I am doing this and I, I, I. So this I is defined as ego, the sense of separation, the sense that I am separate from all the things that are happening. And because I'm separate from it, I am interacting with it, relating to it, and have this sense somehow that I can be in control, that I can 
manipulate the world, manipulate circumstances and events, manipulate people, manipulate my own body, um, that I can somehow push this around because I am separate and as a separate being, I need to be empowered, I need to be in control. And we don't recognize that there are these automatic natural forces that are at work. They're at work within us and around us and that we, we move harmoniously with them. Or if we don't move harmoniously with them, we have problems, we suffer, we, you know, we get upset, we have challenges. So it's very useful for us to just kind of go back and, and number one, be reminded that we are not separate. And then maybe to take a few minutes to do a little intellectual exercise and recognize that this character that we're so identified with and all the things that we find that are so important we made up, we created, you know? So we decide how we dress, we decide where we live, we decide who we spend time with, we decide how we spend our energy, everything. The place that we are right now in life is the place that is the result of all the choices that we've ever made. And yes, uh, you know, some choices were made for us. Mom and dad pushed us in a direction to get a degree in something or to go in this direction, or we had a, a very influential mentor or a friend or somebody who has, you know, influenced us in one direction or another. But we have accepted that. We've accepted that direction. We've accepted that invitation uh, from life. And we have built ourselves. We have actually constructed our mind and our personality, our persona, um, our character. We've, we've created this out of all the decisions that we've ever made. We make it up. And so pure consciousness, pure awareness becomes identified with its expressive aspect, prakriti, purusha, consciousness, involved with and identified with prakriti, this, this uh, expressive aspect of consciousness. And in this involvement, we become so identified with the character, and then we build the character, and pretty soon we forget. We have forgotten that we are the ones that made it up in the first place. And so in this forgetting, in this sense of feeling separate, we suffer because we're constantly trying to feel complete. We're constantly trying to fill in all the places that are not quite working, and as a result, we experience suffering. So this I, this idea that I am doing and that I am having this experience is I, I, I. This is really the place and the very basis of our uh, philosophy that says this is, the, this is the source of problems. This is the source of ignorance. So, so it can be useful for us to just at least intellectually remember that and then look at what we're doing, you know, from time to time <clears throat> and acknowledge when we put these characteristics in place, when we created this persona, this aspect or that aspect. And sometimes, you know, it's very easy. We can go back and go, oh yeah, it's, you know, I thought that would be really good. This person that was really an inspiration to me was living this way or recommending this and I bought it, you know. And some of these things are wonderful and useful and some of them are, are not, you know, some of them turn out to be limiting. So, so we can acknowledge that I am my personality, my persona. Remember, persona 
is uh, from Greek, the Greek word for a mask. In the theater, the, 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 uh, the players on stage uh, needed amplification to be able to heard, be heard out in the audience, you know, in the big arena. And so in order to get the amplification, they made special masks that had a little megaphone built in to the mouthpiece. And the little megaphone allowed them to broadcast the sound. And so the word persona, sona is sound, per is through, sound going through. So persona is literally this mask. So the persona that we have is the character, the mask that we've created. And so we can own that. And because we created it, we can change it. You know, it's not fixed. And we have continued to kind of update our character. You know, every year we have, uh, I do a state of the Ron address and see, you know, where the character Ron is on the planet and in time and space. And um, so we can update our character, we do. And, and there's nothing that stops us from actually making a change and saying, you know, this character I've been playing for all this time is, has some things that are just not useful anymore. And so I'm gonna be a new character. It's going to change, and, and we can do that. So, so this idea about I am the doer is something that we can come to terms with. We can examine, we can think about, and we can ask ourselves really honestly, how much am I doing? You know, am I breathing this body? Am I making the heartbeat? Am I digesting my food? Well, the I, in the sense of you know, this organism is. But I, in the sense of I am doing this, is like, well, that's a little bit of hubris, isn't it? Because the body has this intelligence. It knows how to do what it's doing. And life has this intelligence. It knows how to do what it's doing. And so, you know, we can come to the place where we recognize that we are moving harmoniously in relation to everything. Ultimate reality is expressing as everything we live and move in relation to everything, not separate, not outside. We are not in control of the universe. This idea that terrible things happen to me because because um, I have bad karma or the idea that I can use my mental powers to change the world, you know. Um, we can use our mental powers to learn to come in harmony with the world. And when we find that harmony, within us and in relation to the world around us then we find peace happiness joy contentment and we find that this uh, innate self our own awareness of ourself blossoms because it's not stuck with all this limitation and all these ideas and all these conditionings that have been accumulated along the way as we build our character so hope that makes sense so the wise man knows that when objects act on the senses, it's merely the gunas acting on the gunas. Thus, he is unattached. When objects act on the senses, it is these forces, these gunas, tamas, sattvas, rajas, acting on the gunas within us. So there's this interaction, this harmonious process, and we can notice this, you see. So we may feel, I mean, you know, our experience may be, wow, this is upsetting. And then, but as, as being mindful, as being awake, we can go, oh, well, the, you know, this upset came because of this force interacting with this force. 
here is some resistance that I have, here is a, a cause that's producing this effect. I notice that it's not me. You see, there, is a, there are these conditions that exist and I am the witness to this. And as the witness to this, I can go, okay, well, I'm not gonna let that bother me. I'm letting it go. This is just the gunas acting on the gunas. Stuff happens. Stuff happens all the time. It's okay. It's life, you see? So we can, we can deal with what's coming up and we can handle this and we can move harmoniously. And as Mr. Davis would say, to be dispassionate. This is, does not mean that we're not involved in enjoying life. It means that we're not allowing what's happening to push us around. That we're not allowing the circumstances and events and characteristics and our own conditionings and the opinions of other, all these things to keep pushing us back and forth to regulate our emotions, you know, to make us feel wonderful and make us feel terrible. There's that, uh, that old story about the, the two uh, psychiatrists that meet on the street and go, and uh, one goes, well, you're looking pretty good today. How am I? See, we have to, you know, we don't even know how to feel until we run into somebody and see if they're happy with us or sad, you know, if we push their buttons or, and so we're constantly looking around for confirmation to know how we're supposed to be. You know, this is foolishness, crazy. So we can be, you know, self-oriented, self-regulated and doing what we need to do. And when, when stuff starts to happen and we start to feel the emotions and start to feel responses to things, we can just look at it and go, okay, you know, is this something that's impelling me to, to engage for a useful purpose? Or is it just another one of these old, you know, habits, old buttons that gets pushed and, you know, I just don't need to go there anymore. So, so we can do this. This is being living conscious, mindful. Deluded by the gunas, men grow attached to the gunas' actions. The insightful should not disturb the minds of these foolish men. Deluded by the gunas, men be, grow attached to their actions. So we, we get hooked into, we get attracted to the ups and the downs, you know, the thrill of victory and the agony of defeat. We know what's really good because it's not what's really bad. So we have, you know, we, we, we create these clear uh, delineations. This is good. This is bad. We move away from bad. We move toward good. Uh, we make these decisions about how things are. We carve the world up into pieces and we look always for uh, actually, we look mostly for passion. We look for the rajas, the motion, the activity, you know, and the more activity and the more we get involved in our passions, the more addictive they become, the more, and the more, the more, they, more they carry us forward. And, and then, of course, the guna of tamas, which is heavy and inertial and deadening. And so when this starts to become dominant, we go, wow, I really have to keep that away. I really have to push that away. Or... You know, some people um, become very tamasic and they, they don't want to move around. They don't want to go get out of bed. They don't want to act. They want to stay home, you know, be sequestered. Don't involve, don't get involved with life. Don't take any chances. You know, they get into this very tamasic and they become addicted to that, to that sensation, to that feeling. And then we have some that are really addicted to being sattvic to being bright and elevated and spiritual and 
uh, and become so spiritual that they're meditating four or five hours a day and they walk around kind of floating a little bit and they're very unrealistic and ungrounded and, you know, can't manage to pay their bills and, uh, you know, be responsive in relationship. And, and so we can get a little, you know, a little bit too far in that direction too. These are all natural impulses that are all available, all happening, and all can have a negative effect. All, they all have positive effects too, you know. We need the tamas, we need the grounding, the stability, you know, we need that in our life. So, so tamas has a good useful purpose. It's not to be completely pushed away. It's just when this becomes too much, when it becomes over, uh, you know, goes over the top, and then that becomes the problem and then we suffer. So, so we notice that individuals are naturally tamasic, rajasic, sattvic. We notice that these influences are happening, that they are stuck in their own reality, addicted to the gunas, addicted to whatever's happening. And Krishna says, the insightful should not disturb the minds of these foolish men. So once again, it's not up to us to fix people. It's not up to us to point out the error of their ways. It's up to us to pay attention to us. We should be a karma yogi is, is working in harmony with their own unfolding pattern. See? So this is the second time Krishna has said, leave people alone. Don't mess with them. Give them the space to be what they're going to be. They will eventually wake up like everyone else. And also, Mr. Davis commented on this, and he said that um, that these gunas, you know, the effect of these create disordered thought, disordered thinking, sentimentality, shifting moods, clouded awareness, and confusion. So, for one who is addicted to these uh, these gunas, these uh, um, impulses that are coming from outside, that are attached. They're not thinking clearly, they're confused, uh, and we see, we see so much of this. I mean, every day, if you, if you pay any attention and watch a little bit of news or, or check on, you know, I just check online for the headlines, but we see that there are a lot of people out here on the planet that are very confused, you know, that are signing up and doing things that are really not, not useful, not for themselves and, not, of course, not for their society. Um, so we need to pay attention to ourselves, to be mindful, and not to walk around in a daze, you know, Mr. Davis would say, most, uh, most individuals' consciousness is blurred and fragmented, not seeing clearly, not appreciating what they are, not appreciating their relationship with life, and so kind of living in a fog, living in a haze. So Krishna says, performing all actions for my sake desireless, absorbed in the self, indifferent to I and mine, let go of your grief and fight. Remember, Arjuna is sitting there going, I don't want to fight. I'm not sure what to do. And I really don't want to, you know, have to do battle with my cousins. And Krishna says, let go of your grief. Forget this I and mine and all this individualized ego stuff. Let it go. Just work for me, which is, and the me is, higher consciousness is pure consciousness is life so engage fully with life instead of you know wrestling around with all these ideas that are just limitations 
Men who constantly practice this teaching of mine, Arjuna, who trust it with all their heart, are freed from the bondage of actions. Freed from the bondage of actions. So this is the way of liberation. So we have uh, many ways of liberation that are um, pointed out here in the Bhagavad Gita, many paths, and this path of karma yoga is one of these ways. Selfless service, selfless action, doing what it is that we're to do. Uh, but those who are mistrustful, half-hearted, that fail to practice my teaching, wander in the darkness, lost, stupefied by delusion. So we have a choice. We can be free or we can wander in delusion, lost, stupefied. Sounds like a pretty easy choice to me. <laughs> and, um, and Roy's comment was, you know, that we can either be dedicated to our spiritual awakening path or, like many, to be sort of half-hearted. Kind of, you know, we show up a little bit for our meditation practice and we, we work at it, you know, when we have some extra time, but we're not completely fully engaged. And so, and so this, uh, this does not help change these conditionings. It does not allow us to really unfold. Regular meditation practice, just to practice, if we're really intentional and if we stay bright and awake and we continue with this, um, this process of allowing ourselves to wake up little by little, but we stay intentional, we're not just drifting. If this happens, then slowly but surely a transformation is taking place. Both the transformation in our brain, we're actually rewiring the brain. So the mind brain is, is becoming adept at functioning, at, uh, attuning itself to higher consciousness. And then we're having these moments, even if they're just little flashes, these moments of awareness and experience and noticing that we are conscious without having to think, these things are transformative. And so over time, we're actually changed. And there's also, a, a, because our energy is being focused back up into the upper centers, there's actually a subtle uh, energetic process of cleansing and purification, karma, and some of these conditionings lose their power, lose their juice, lose their influence. And so, all, so in all these ways, if we're really dedicated and really intentional with our spiritual process, this will allow us, support us in awakening so that we're not wandering around stupefied in delusion. Nobody wants that. Even the wise man acts in accordance with his inner nature. All beings follow their nature. What good can repression do? So even the wise man acts in harmony with his own nature. So what is our nature? It's not, you know, it's not somebody else. It's not some hero or some figure that we see out there that we think, wow, wouldn't it be great to be like that? No, we find out what is our nature. What are we here to do? What is our purpose? What is it? Where is the place where we shine? You know, we should wake up every morning, I believe, fired up. We should be, if we're living on purpose, then we can't wait to get back to fulfilling our purpose. You know, our life should be full and juicy and engaging. And we can do that. So what is our nature? Craving and aversion arise when the senses encounter sense objects. Do not fall prey to these two brigands that are blocking your path. 
craving and aversion, attraction and aversion, you know, attachment. So don't fall, uh, don't fall victim to these brigands, these obstacles that are standing in your way. So when the senses come in touch with sense objects, when this relationship happens, then there, then this, uh, uh, then this begins this process of either craving or aversion, attachment or aversion. So when, when we touch something, when we see something, we're touching with our eyes, where you know, the electromagnetic radiation is touching the eyeballs. And so we're touching the world. We see something we like, mm, we're attracted. We want to see more of that. We want to get more of that. We see something we really don't like, and we shut our eyes, we turn our head away. We really don't want that. The senses touch the world, and then we are either attracted or we have this aversion, we push it away. In the same way with taste and smell and touch, all these senses are either attached, attracted, or have an aversion, pushing away. And these, this attaching and aversion, these this opinions and the senses, the, the feelings that the senses have, then have control over us. We are now at the whim of what the senses are telling us. So, Krishna goes on and says, it's better to do your own duty badly than to perfectly do another's. You're safe from harm when you do what you should be doing. So you're, it's better to do your own duty badly than to perfectly do someone else's. So it's much better to be in tune with ourself, to be living with integrity, to be living from our own center, following our nature and doing the best we can. Even if the best we can is not that great, eventually it will be. Um, even if it's not that great, it's much better than to be living somebody else's life or living the, the idea that somebody else has planted in our head or because we think, wow, you know, if I could just be, if I could start a company and, you know, make some new amazing software and next week I'll be rich, I'll be a billionaire and then I can have some influence in the world and know get my yacht and my private jet and and be somebody you know so all I have to do is be like one of these <coughs> kids you know these 17 year old kids in Silicon Valley who just comes up with an idea and then next week they're fantastically rich and everybody's you know pounding a path to their doorstep and no you know we recognize where our strength is what it is that's in our nature to do and we do the best we can when I was working as an illustrator, we often went to uh, conventions, science fiction conventions. And I remember uh, a fellow that I met and became friends with who had been a very successful attorney. So he was in, I think, Alabama um, working. You know, he went through law school. I don't know how many years of school to get to get his law degree and started a practice. And so he had a very successful practice as a lawyer and he was making a lot of money and he hated it. And so finally he quit his job as a lawyer and took up a pen and a, and a paintbrush and started doing what I was doing, which is painting book covers and magazines and, and working for a pittance. I mean, compared to what he was making before as a lawyer, you know, it was nothing, but he was really happy. He was doing what he liked to do. He was doing, you know, it was wonderful. We had a local jeweler in town. We used to have a a jewelry store in, here in Clayton. And 
the fellow that was running the jewelry store was really good. I mean, he was a, a wonderful jeweler. He had a good creative eye and he was reasonably priced. He was fair and had a successful business. Had the only jewelry store in 25 miles, you know. Um, and he aspired, he always wanted to be a painter. He wanted to, he actually wanted to paint duck stamps. So in the, in the, in the world of whatever, you know, you, you buy a duck stamp to go duck hunting and each year uh, some artist is granted this makes, wins this giant prize and gets lots of accolades for being the one that's chosen. If their, their painting of a duck goes on the duck stamp. And so, so this fellow here in Clayton, this is what he wanted to do. And he was a terrible artist. I mean, he was, <laughs> he was, he was really not good. Um, but this is what he wanted to do. This is what he loved. And so he spent more and more time painting ducks and, you know, nature scenes and less and less time involved with jewelry. And finally, um, he was painting sort of primitive uh, scenes of, of old Raven County. So he had, you know, these old scenes of cars and buildings and, and very primitive, okay, but very primitive. And local people uh, started buying these. So he started making prints. So he'd make a painting. And the next thing he's got, you know, a, a limited edition of 150 prints that, are, that he's selling for a couple hundred bucks a piece. And then this goes into that. He continues to paint ducks, eventually gets a duck stamp, you know, he, he finally gets his craft up to the place where he's chosen for the duck stamp. Um, and he, closes down the jewelry shop, gets married, his wife and he open a frame shop to frame artwork. And, you know, for the last 15 or 20 years, he's been a very successful artist with a frame shop and continuing to do new prints and, and you know, people, he's collectible. I don't know how many he's got out there, but people every year, year when he comes out with something new, everybody goes, oh, I need to get one of, one of Broderick's prints. And, and so, Here's somebody who, again, you know, they were living the life uh, as a jeweler and it, was, it wasn't satisfying. And so just getting involved and, and following the passion, you know, this whole thing unfolded. And I, and I, was, I was amazed. I thought, wow, this is really a perfect example of what happens if you follow your dream and you're just persistent and persistent and persistent. And so, so he developed his own style and his own style became appreciated and you know he has the new life that comes from this so krishna is making sense here better to do your own duty badly than to perfectly do another's you're safe from harm when you do what you should be doing so uh, and then arjuna comes back and he goes <clears throat> well what is it that drives a man to evil actions krishna even against his will, as if some force made him do it. So what happens when we have these impulses that lead us to do things that are really not useful? We promised we would never do that again, and here we are doing that again, huh? Well, next time I'll do better. Or we promised we would do that. We, you know, this is important for my well-being, and I'm, it's very easy for me to forget. You know, to go, okay, well, I got to start over tomorrow and get back on the track, you know. So what is it that's doing this? <clears throat> and Krishna says, that force is desire. Desire. 
It is anger arising from the guna called rajas. Deadly and all-devouring is the enemy here. The force is desire. It is anger arising from the guna called rajas. Deadly and all-devouring. That's the enemy here. Just as a fire is obscured by smoke, a mirror is covered by dust, a fetus is wrapped in a membrane, so wisdom is obscured by desire. Wisdom is destroyed, Arjuna, by the constant em- by the constant enemy of the wise, which, flaring up as desire, blazes with insatiable flames. Desire, desire, desire dwells in the senses, the mind, and the understanding. In all of these, it obscures wisdom and perplexes the embodied self. Desire, so wow. Krishna has a pretty strong opinion about desire. And of course, we're going to go back to uh, the Buddhist tradition and the first teaching of the Buddha. The first thing he said was, in the Four Noble Truths, he said, uh, first there is dukkha, suffering. Suffering, problems, challenges. Little suffering, big suffering. You know, you pull into the grocery store and it turns out that they're out of shiitake mushrooms. What are we going to do? This is suffering, you know. Or the, the hurricane comes along and blows the tree down on the car. This is suffering. So all these sufferings, life is full of suffering, suffering, suffering. This is what the Buddha said. And then the second noble truth is Trishna, thirst. So the cause for suffering is desire. Cause for suffering is desire. So we go to the store and there's no shiitake mushrooms and we go, okay, well, tonight I'm going to have eggplant. No problem. No suffering. But if my desire is to have the mushrooms and they don't have the mushrooms, then we create suffering, you see? So, and the, the hurricane blows the tree down on the car and we look at it and go, okay, well, it's a good thing I've got insurance. I'm going to call Tony down the street. He'll come and get the tree off the car. And then I'm going to call my insurance agent and, you know, they'll give me a loaner and I'll be back on the road. No problem. Or, or the desire is to have everything perfect all the time and to be in control of the world. And the tree fell on my car and it's personal. The universe has it in for me. I'm a victim. And so now we suffer. See, I mean, both of these scenarios are up to us. We suffer because of the desire for things to be different than they are. As long as we desire for things to be different than they are, then there's an upset at some level. So, so, so uh, Buddha says, Trishna, thirst, desire, is the cause of suffering. And then the fourth, third noble truth is Niroda, that is to resist and to restrain. So if we resist and restrain the desires, then we won't suffer. And the fourth noble truth is that there's a way to learn to resist the, the uh, desires so that we won't suffer. So this is the four noble truths basically the same thing. Krishna is saying, as long as we're stuck on desire, as long as we're allowing ourselves to be wanting things to be different than they are, then we're going to suffer. Then we have problems, you see. And so what is in the, in the yoga sutras, you know, we have in the, in the uh, <clears throat> observances, the niyamas, and the first one is contentment. So what is contentment? Contentment means that we're happy with things the way they are. That we don't have 
that we're not being pushed around by our desires. It doesn't mean that we can't change. It doesn't mean that we're not living. It doesn't mean that we're not engaged. It just simply means that it's okay. And when things happen, we go, all right, it's time to deal with it, to handle this, to move, to engage, to be fully present, you see, and we can do that. So, so Krishna goes on and says, therefore, you must control your senses and then destroy this evil that prevents you from ever knowing the truth. Men say the senses are strong, but the mind is stronger. And understanding is stronger than the mind. And the strongest of all is the self. So men say the senses are strong. They're, you know, I can't resist. They, they pull me around. They push me here and there. But the mind is superior. The mind can override the senses. We have the ability. The frontal lobes can inhibit uh, reaction and, and conditioned reaction and, and impulses from the senses. We can just say no. We're not going to do that. We're not going there. We're not going to be upset. We're not going to be angry. We're not going to be pushed around by circumstances and events. We're not going to be victims. We're going to be mindful and be in control and be in charge. So the mind is superior to the senses. And the understanding or the intellect is stronger than the mind. So the intellect, the discerning aspect of our consciousness, that which can see the difference between what's real and not real, that knows the difference between what's true and not true. You see, this intellect is superior to the mind. So the mind has impulses, the mind has conditionings, the mind has concepts and ideas, sometimes ideas that we, we should be going here or going there or not doing this, not doing that. And discernment goes, maybe we should double think, maybe we should think on this, maybe we should sleep on it and and look at it again in the morning. Maybe we shouldn't be so rash. We have this intellect that can that is superior to the mind. And superior to the intellect is the soul, is the self, is the Atman, is this essence of what we are. And this essence of what we are always knows, is always awake, but it's but it's subtle. And just like Krishna says, the wise man does not. Uh, interfere with the foolish, does not upset the mind of the foolish. In the same way, the Atman, this essence of being, doesn't interfere unduly with all the other processes. See, we have to kind of allow it to come to the fore. We have to make it important. We have to give it our attention, our awareness, our love for it to be able to, to really um, become present. And so, and in this presence, we have intuition, knowing. We know by knowing. I can't tell you how many times I have counseled people. They have this hard question that they come with. And, and so I listen, you know, and I ask them, you know, how does this work? What does this mean? How does this feel? And the whole time, I am fully aware, and at some level they are too, that they already know the answer. Before they even had the question, the answer is already present. And so the, I, the exercise of talking and thinking about it, all these things are just ways of kind of sneaking up and working our way around to what we already know we should be doing or should not be doing, you know? So, so there is this, this um, awareness that this intelligence that is deep within us, always present, 
it is superior to the intellect, the intellect is superior to the mind, the mind is superior to the senses, and we are the self. So we are superior to all. So we can have this control. <clears throat> and then finally, Krishna ends this chapter by saying, knowing the self, sustaining the self by the self, Arjuna, kill the difficult to conquer enemy called desire. So compulsion, desire, things that are pushing us around, you know, these passions, this rajas, um, we can put, we can bring this under our control. So remember the <clears throat> Arjuna is in the chariot, which represents the body. The chariot's being pulled by the five horses, the five senses, under the flag of Hanuman, prana, life force, energy. So, and Krishna, who represents higher consciousness, is the charioteer, driving the chariot. And Arjuna is asking the questions and learning. But all the time, Krishna is in charge of the chariot, is in charge of the direction, you see. So we let this higher consciousness direct us. We allow ourselves to be guided and led with intuition from within. And we find, even though we're not sure how it's going to work, that amazing things happen, that our life unfolds in these miraculous ways, you know. We, we, we get the duck stamp. Wow. So... Um, so it's possible for us to do this, and so we'll end the, the chapter on karma yoga, the yoga of selfless service, of action. We'll end that with that last uh, saying from Krishna, knowing the self, sustaining the self by the self, Arjuna killed the difficult-to-conquer enemy called desire. Bring it under control. Okay, so... Uh, and Will Bailey says, if freed from addiction to the gunas, will this lead to the embodied true self that is eternally indestructible? Are we embodied in a false self subject to destruction because of the addiction to the gunas? Um, will this lead to the embodied true self? Well, the, the, the true self, the embodied true self is always there this is just covered up. The, the, this experience of being of ourself is covered up by these conditionings, is covered up by these uh, attitudes and these ideas. These are the limitations. And so, as Krishna said, um, the mirror is covered by dust and doesn't reflect. We have to get rid of the dust. The fire is covered by smoke. We don't see the fire because of the smoke. So, and we don't see the self we don't experience ourself, our own being, because we have constructed this character. We have constructed all these ideas about the way we can be and the way we can't be. You know, what's okay, what's not okay, shoulds and should nots. And the, these conditionings that push our buttons, we find that we're reacting. When people are nice to us, we feel good. When people disrespect us, we feel terrible. Those are all as a result of these conditionings. They're like little apps that are running in the background and they get activated when we get in the right condition, the right circumstances. So, so the whole idea is when we remove the obstacles, when we remove the things that are standing in the way, then the self shines forth. Then we are liberated. Liberation is not something that we are trying to accomplish. It's just simply 
already there within us, but we're not expressing it because we're covered up with all this stuff, you know? Um, it's like in the beginning of the Christmas Carol, Charles Dickens' Christmas Carol, when uh, uh, Marley shows up in, the, in Ebenezer Scrooge, Scrooge's dream, you know, at the very beginning, Ebenezer, Ebenezer Scrooge, this crotchety old man, totally self-serving, he has this dream and his old partner who died, Mark Joseph Marley shows up and he's clanking chains and carrying his big heavy chains and oh and and Scrooge is going, Oh wow, what happened? you know? And and Marley says, These are the chains that I forged in my life. These are the things that I the, all these conditionings and all these terrible things that I've done and I'm carrying these around now for eternity. You know. So this is this is the this is what limits this is what constricts so we just have to get rid of them, throw off the chains you know wake up tomorrow and be a new person and be the new person without the conditionings say i'm i'm done with that i've had that that adventure's over and i'm ready for a new one and i that's i wake up every day it's a new day new adventure opportunities abound i'm alive wow you know let's go I think this is, uh, you know, a really good works for me, um, and we don't have to be the same person we were yesterday. So I mean, it's optional. So, so uh, you know, decide on your life and live it. And we're not we're not doomed to, you know, destruction, and we're not doomed to be limited forever. It's, you know, all we have to do is just show up, follow the guidance that we've got from all these wise people before us. Practice the best that we can, the, just the best we can, just keep showing up. And as we practice and do the best we can, we will find that little by little by little progress is made. And we look back at the end of the year and go, wow, I am a different person. I'm a different person. We will look back in five years and we go, wow, I'm really a different person. Life has completely changed. Isn't that amazing? You know? so, so that's good for today. Sean, uh, Ron, just a little question. Um, maybe I have a, a different or wrong concept about desire. Um, what I understood is that you said um, every suffering or the cause for every suffering is desire. Um, is uh, our desire for being self and God-realized or um, going to a higher way is not also a desire? Hmm. Yeah, that's a good question. And of course, uh, as we talked about in the previous chapter, um, Krishna says, you know, we ha you have to live. I mean, actually, at the beginning of this chapter, you have to live, we have to be engaged, we have to act. And so when we're hungry, we have the desire to eat. This is healthy. This is normal. This is natural. The desires we're talking about that are harmful are the ones that are conditionings, that are compulsive, that are attachments, you know, where we're attached. Now, now, if we come, if we in, in the spiritual realm, if we create this idea that we are a spiritual seeker, and so I'm always aspiring, I'm always going to be working at becoming fully conscious. And Mr. Davis would say, stop working at it and just be it. You know, as long as we, as long as we are working at it, as long as we're trying to plug into this ultimate reality out there, then, then psychologically we imply that it's not here. So even, you know, even our uh, attachment 
to being spiritual can also be distorted and can be a trap, you know. So we have to be mindful and be conscious of how we approach this. So when we sit to meditate, we acknowledge I am part of the wholeness of ultimate reality. I am a unit of the expressive aspect of ultimate reality. I'm already it. We acknowledge that and then we allow ourselves to, to move into that experience. We don't acknowledge that I am a mere suffering worm that hopes someday and aspires to be able to have the grace, you know, to be in the presence of God out there somewhere. Because this is, you know, this is the implication. This is kind of the, the Western Christian approach. Um, and so, so, you know, much better for us to be always to be aspiring and to be uh, reminded of what's the truth, that I am already perfect and whole and conscious, and that I am God expressing. And God is expressing to have this life and to interact and experience itself through all these other forms. So I just get to go along for the ride. I am a participant in this wonderful adventure of life. And if we see it that way, then it really begins to blossom for us. That make sense? Totally. Thank you. <clears throat> Hey, Ron. Can I ask a quick question as well? Um, can you, sometimes I get a little caught up in the nuance of, you know, what you said about if you desire for things to be different than they are right now, then that's, something's off. But then, you know, I know obviously a lot of new age and spiritual traditions, but also Mr. Davis himself talked a lot about using your creative imagination to inspire change uh, in your circumstances or, you know, if you're not happy that you're making $12 an hour and you can't put the proper food on your table in an abusive relationship, use your creative imagination to pull yourself out of that situation. How does, what is that nuance there that, you know, yeah, is between those two things, I guess? <laughs> well, that's a, that's, that's a great question. It's a very good question. And, uh, and so thank you for asking that because being content means that I can be okay with myself. It doesn't mean that I'm not going to change. It doesn't mean that I'm not inspired to do greater things, to do better, to have uh, changes in my environment, in my life, in my conditions that are life enhancing. You know, Mr. Davis always, always also qualified that by saying, we, wish we should be able to easily fulfill our life-enhancing desires. Mm -hmm. And what is enhancing our life is not, not feeding our ego, not making us feel more special or more separate, but it allows us to live on purpose, allows us to fulfill our purpose, allows us to, to work in harmony in greater ways. So if we find that we're in a relationship that's not working, then we use creative imagination to see ourselves to be in our ideal place. We don't use creative imagination to see this other person being destroyed <laughs> or to see or to have problems or, you know, we don't, we're not, this is witchcraft. We don't do that. Instead, we just see my, my life is perfect and whole. I'm in my right place. The relationships are now all harmonious, mutually supportive. And then by doing that, the relationship will either change, which happens, or the change or the relationship will dissolve. And so this is a useful way. If we, if we feel impelled, if we feel uh, inspired to do something that's useful and we don't have the resources, 
then Mr. Davis says, you know, acquire the, the resources, change your consciousness so that you have what you need to fulfill your purposes. So this is all completely in harmony, but we can do that while we're content. So we can do that without being compelled, without being upset, without being driven. Does that, that make sense? Does that help? Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. It's kind of more like the intention behind it uh, yeah. of why. Yeah. Thank yeah. you. Appreciate that. Good. All right. So is that good? Are we more questions? All right. So today we'll go, I'm going to go have lunch and uh, some of you will go have supper and everybody will be joyful and enjoy this beautiful day and we will see you tomorrow. Namaste.